You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of David Byrne. Some five kilometres from the centre of Dublin city sits Emmet Court, just off the Grand Canal in Inchicore. The residential development is made up of a terraced row of houses which run along the road, leading into a gated complex made up of three apartment blocks and a car park. Despite the back of the buildings facing out onto the canal walk, an ideal place for a stroll, a seven-foot wall surrounds the complex, meaning the only access to the apartments is through the main gate to the side of the apartment blocks. On March 19, 2011, just after 20 to 11 at night, Thomas Quinn was returning home to his apartment, located in Emmet Court, when he drove past a group of young men on the road by the terraced houses. As he passed by them, Mr. Quinn noticed that the men pulled their hoods up, which concealed their faces. Thomas continued on along the road, slowing down to go over the speed bump at the gate at the apartment complex, and as he did so, a young man sprinted past his car, followed closely by one of the hooded youths. The rest of the young men hung back. Thomas watched as the first man who'd run past his car reached the wall at the end of the car park and tried to scale it, but it proved to be too high. The second man caught up with him, and a scuffle ensued, which Quinn assumed was a fistfight. However, as he parked his car and got out, he heard someone scream, quote, Help him, he's after being stabbed. Mr. Quinn made his way towards the victim, who staggered around for a moment, before falling down. Thomas could see blood on the side of the young man's mouth, and as he put his hand on the injured man's back, he felt that it was wet. Quinn pressed a t-shirt to the wounds to try and stem the bleeding, as he rang an ambulance while the man struggled to get back up mumbling that he was having trouble breathing. Emergency services arrived on the scene within minutes and paramedics set about treating the man. His clothes were cut off, revealing multiple stab wounds, and less than a minute after the arrival of the EMTs, he'd stopped breathing. CPR was started and the man was loaded into the ambulance and rushed to St. James's Hospital. But unfortunately, he was pronounced dead shortly after arriving. The young man was 19-year-old David Byrne, who lived at the Davitt House Flats, just a short walk across the canal bridge from where he was stabbed. Gardie immediately notified David's father, David Sr., and asked him to go to the hospital to formally identify his son's body. He later recalled the pain of not being able to touch his son's body, saying, quote, I seen him lying there, I couldn't go near him, couldn't do anything. David Sr. then had to go through the harrowing task of informing David's mother, Anne. Though the couple hadn't been together since David was a young boy, they remained amicable and close. Later, David Sr. told the press, quote, I had to tell Anne her son was dead. Then I had to go through the process of telling the rest of the family. It was an incredibly difficult thing to do. Due to the criminal nature of David's injuries, his family members were told that they couldn't touch his body as they gathered at the hospital. However, Anne, 
who shared a strong bond with her son, couldn't stop herself, and she took him in her arms. David's death was a double blow to her as she was enduring a long battle with terminal cancer. David was her sole carer, and she was devastated by his loss. Having worked part-time as a DJ, David was well-known and well-liked in the local community. Those who knew him described him as a, quote, lovely young fella who was always smiling. David was passionate about music and had even campaigned to set up a community radio station in the area, but the project never got off the ground. Unfortunately, despite his desire to do good within the community, David became involved in petty crime as a young teen, and though he wasn't considered a significant criminal, he was known to be friends with a number of lower-tier drug dealers. An article printed in the Irish Examiner reported that the year before his death, David had lost a quantity of cannabis belonging to these dealers, who in turn put a debt of a few thousand euro on his head. This ultimately caused a falling out between himself and his friends, and soon after, David was attacked in nearby Drimna, suffering a minor stab wound to his neck. However, following his mother's terminal diagnosis, David Byrne made a huge effort to change his life for the better. He became Anne's full-time carer, and when he realised it was something he thrived on, David signed up for a false course to develop his skills as a caregiver. He also had an elderly uncle with autism who he visited regularly, and this inspired him to want to work with adults with intellectual disabilities. Because of this, at the time of his death, David was spending two days a week caring for adults with autism and Down syndrome at Walkinstown Association. Paul Flanagan, who was David's project leader at the association, said he was always smiling, and it was obvious that he had made great efforts and was doing his best to turn his life around. Paul continued, quote, He was caring, compassionate, and interested in everyone. He had such enthusiasm. Gardy and Kilmainham immediately launched a murder inquiry, and the car park at Emmett Court was sealed off pending technical examination. Search teams scoured nearby green areas for any evidence, and the cemetery opposite the complex was also combed for any items that might be relevant to the investigation. A number of residents at the apartment complex who had witnessed the incident came forward to give statements, including a woman named Sonia Byrne. Sonia told officers that she had seen the face of the man who chased David into the dark corner of Emmet Court, and she was confident that she would recognise him if she saw him again. Officers also canvassed nearby Davit House, where David lived with his mother, to try and build a picture of his movements on the night that he died. Meanwhile, members of the Garda Subaqua team began a search of the stretch of the canal close to the scene of the stabbing. This resulted in a number of potential weapons being removed from the water and taken away for further examination. A post-mortem examination was carried out on David's body at St. James's Hospital, where it was found that he had been stabbed nine times. Eight lacerations of varying depths were found on his back, and he had also sustained a stab wound to the face. Both his heart and lungs were punctured in the attack, and the cause of death was given as multiple stab wounds. One of the fatal lacerations was 20 centimetres deep. Gardy briefed the media, keen to stress that although they were not following any definite line of inquiry, they were satisfied that the killing was not gangland-related. Police let it be known that David Byrne had very little in the way of criminal background. A Garda source told the press, quote, 
This seems to have been a falling out among a group of former friends and young fellows over drugs and money. Due to a rise in antisocial behaviour, the area in which the attack took place had an abundance of surveillance cameras. Detective Sergeant Michael McNulty, who was one of the lead investigators, harvested a considerable amount of CCTV footage from multiple cameras in the hope that they could piece together David's final movements. Recordings were taken from the cameras at Crow's Off-Licence, the John Bosco Youth Club in Drimna, the nearby Lewis Stop, the road leading into Emmett Court, and the Emmett Court apartment complex. Finally, Gardy also obtained footage from the cameras on Ben Bulban Road. From these recordings, the team were able to put together what amounted to a 45-minute montage, which showed David Byrne and his assailants before, during, and after the stabbing. The recordings began with David Byrne going into Crow's off-licence. The next clip showed a group of youths wearing hoodies in and around the Bosco. In the footage, officers could see them dispersing and hiding in the bushes and gardens of the houses near the club. A short time later, David Byrne came into view, walking across the road from the Lewis tracks opposite the Bosco. As David passed the houses where the youths were hiding, there was obvious movement visible in the gardens, and then suddenly, the youths were seen running from their hiding spots. They started to chase David, who immediately turned and fled, sprinting back across the road towards the Lewis tracks. He ran up the steps and over the Lewis Bridge that crosses the Grand Canal and beyond the reach of the cameras at the Bosco. The next clip, taken from the Drimna Lewis stop, showed David running down the stairs of the footbridge and crossing the road to St. Vincent Street West as the group gave chase. Cameras from Emmett Court caught the lengthy chase, and by the time David reached the Emmett Court apartment complex, he had been running for almost a half a kilometre and was clearly out of breath. The cameras from the apartment complex showed him running through the car park before going off camera into a dark corner of the complex. He was followed closely behind by a youth wearing a grey hoodie, while three others were hanging back but still within view of the camera. The youth in the grey hoodie was off camera for 26 seconds, and when he came back into frame he turned sideways, catching a side profile of his face. The gang then ran off while David Burns staggered back into view and collapsed onto the ground. CCTV footage from Ben Bulban Road showed the same gang a short time later with their faces uncovered, entering a takeaway in Drimna. Ironically, this footage was captured on cameras that were installed following the murder of two Polish men in an unprovoked attack on Ben Bulban Road three years before. Gardy believed that the young men who attacked David Byrne were unaware of the existence of the cameras. Once inside the chipper, one of the group was seen pointing to something on the sleeve of the youth in the grey hoodie. This prompted the young man to leave the takeaway and take the hoodie off, revealing a striped rugby shirt underneath. He then went back inside with the hoodie rolled up in his hand. Officers believed he had removed the hoodie as a bloodstain was pointed out by his friend. The harrowing montage of the chase showed the desperation and panic that David Byrne experienced during his final moments. Brian Murphy, who was the manager of the John Bosco Youth Club at the time, viewed the footage from their cameras before he handed it over to Gardee. He later said, quote, What sticks with you is the sense of sheer panic and fear. There was a palpable sense of that in the footage. You could feel it yourself watching it, that sense of sheer panic that would have taken hold of him. 
Detective Sergeant McNulty was confident that the side profile captured of the youth in the grey hoodie at the apartment complex was clear enough to be identifiable. Working off the theory that the young men were likely known to Gardy who patrolled the local community, a viewing of the compiled footage was arranged at the incident room in Kilmainham Garda Station. Officers from Kilmainham and the nearby Sundrive Road stations attended the viewing. Upon watching the clip from the apartment complex, Gerda Pat Culhane from Sundrive Road identified the youth in the grey hoodie as Marcus Kerwin. Garda Culhane was assigned to bike duties in the Drimna area where Marcus Kerwin lived and he recognised the 17-year-old from his regular patrols on the ground. Despite his young age, Kerwin already had a number of convictions, mostly drug-related. On the basis of this identification, three days after David Byrne was stabbed to death, Marcus Kerwin was arrested and brought to Kevin Street Garda Station for questioning. When arrested, he was wearing a green and white striped rugby shirt, identical to the one worn by the youth in the footage from the Drimna Chipper on the night of the killing. Six other young people were also arrested and they were taken to various stations across Dublin City for questioning on suspicion of withholding information. Two of these youths were just 13 years of age. As the teens were being interviewed by Gardy, a vigil was held for David Byrne at the Emmet Court apartment complex. Friends and family members of the young man gathered to pay tribute to him, with some leaving notes and flowers. A collection of chocolates, coke and a football jersey were also left at the scene, symbolising David's favourite things. Meanwhile, Marcus Kerwin was questioned at length, but he denied any knowledge of David Byrne's murder. He repeatedly stated that he was innocent and had no involvement in the killing. However, through questioning the six other youths, Gardy learned that Kerwin had a deep personal animosity for David Byrne, which had been ongoing for some time. Writing for the Irish Independent, Tom Brady reported that although Gardy were now satisfied that the main motive for David's death was the money he owed for the drugs that had been lost, Officers now also believed that a personal dispute between David and the main suspect had played a part. An article published in the Evening Herald reported that the row between the young men stemmed from David Byrne contacting the other man's girlfriend on a social networking site. Similarly, Jim Cusack wrote in the Sunday Independent that David had been killed in a row over a mutual love interest. Ultimately, Kerwin and the other youths were released without charge, but as part of their investigation, Gardy continued to question people that they believed held information, putting pressure on them to talk. By the end of March, a total of 14 people had been arrested and released without charge. Most were juveniles under the age of 17, however, a woman in her 30s, believed to be the mother of the main suspect, was also questioned. Although no charges were brought, it was clear that the investigators were actively pursuing leads as they built up their case. David Byrne's funeral was held two weeks to the day after he was killed. Hundreds of mourners turned out to pay their respects to the young man at the Church of Our Lady of Good Counsel in Drimna. In his impassioned homily, Father David Brannigan described David Byrne as a young man who was, quote, bursting with vitality, energy and dreams, and said that his death had created a, quote, profound sense of sadness, pain, shock and revulsion. The priest told the congregation that David's killers were, quote, agents of evil and misery who corrupted God's plan. Father Brannigan highlighted that David was a natural carer who had been thriving in his course at the time of his death. The priest continued that, quote, those who did this will one day stand before God. 
sadly, on April 16th, four weeks to the day after her son was murdered, Anne Burns' long battle with cancer finally ended when she passed away at Our Lady's Hospice in Harold's Cross. As the investigation into David Byrne's murder continued, Gardy began to look closely at who David was communicating with in the lead-up to his killing. The CCTV footage clearly showed that he was ambushed at the John Bosco Youth Club, and in order to strengthen their case, investigators needed to establish how David was lured there in the first place. Detective Garda Brendan Supple examined David's phone using XRY Cloud, a forensic software that extracts extensive amounts of digital information from mobile devices. Detective Supple recovered more than 30 text messages that were sent and received by David's phone on the night he was stabbed. The first text was sent from David's phone to a number that he had saved in it under the name Sinead S., asking if she was coming out to meet him that night. The tone of the messages was friendly and intimate, and it was clear that David and Sinead knew each other well. The text exchange went back and forth for a while before David received a message from an unsaved phone number ending in 1132, claiming to be from Sinead. The message explained that her phone battery was dead and that she was using someone else's phone to text him instead. David didn't question this and continued to chat with the number, trying to arrange a meetup for that night. According to journalist Natasha Reed, in one of these texts, David wrote that he couldn't go near the shore road because he was, quote, fighting with the boys, indicating that there had been some sort of dispute with his friends. However, David gave no further background to this statement. He suggested that they meet at the canal, but the person claiming to be Sinead said that they wanted to meet at the Bosco instead. Having attended the youth club from the age of seven and later serving as a junior leader to younger attendees, David knew the club well. He agreed to the meeting place and the pair spent the rest of the evening chatting. The final text message from David's phone was sent at 10.40pm that night, saying, quote, I'm there, XX. The evidence that David was lured to the youth centre and ambushed was indisputable, and combined with the CCTV footage and identification of Marcus Kerwin, a clear picture of the murder was emerging. However, Gardine knew that they needed to tie the number ending in 1132 to their main suspect. Officers discovered that the number originally belonged to Alan Kerwin, who was an uncle of Marcus's. They spoke to Alan, who told them that he gave the SIM card to his nephew two months before David was killed. Gardie dug a bit further and found that Marcus Kerwin had given the number ending in 1132 to his probation officer as his main means of contact just three weeks before David's murder. By obtaining the records from the network provider, it was established that the phone was topped up at the Centra on Aragal Road, Drimna, four days before the stabbing. On viewing CCTV footage from this shop, Marcus Kerwin was clearly identifiable as the person who purchased the mobile phone credit. Examining the phone records for the number offered another breakthrough for officers when they found that a call had been placed from the phone to a local taxi company on the night of March 19th. They located the taxi driver in question, who told them that he remembered picking up a number of young men from the Nopnaree area in Drimna and dropping them to the John Bosco Youth Club. Based on these developments, Detective Superintendent Gabriel O'Gara 
applied to the Dublin District Court for an arrest warrant, and on April 20th, 2011, Marcus Kerwin was arrested for the second time. While in custody, Kerwin took part in a formal identity parade with more than a dozen other young men, and when Emmett Court resident Sonia Byrne viewed this parade, she immediately identified Marcus Kerwin as the boy in the grey hoodie who had chased David Byrne into the dark corner of the apartment complex. He was subsequently charged with David's murder. Marcus Kerwin's trial began before Mr. Justice Garrick Sheehan on January 14th, 2013. Kerwin pleaded not guilty to the murder of David Byrne. During his opening speech, Dennis Von Buckley, senior counsel, told the jury that a number of youths set upon David Byrne near the John Bosco Youth Club on the night that he died. He was then chased into a dead end and stabbed nine times. Mr. Von Buckley said that evidence would be heard from Emmett Court resident Thomas Quinn, who would recall how he saw a young man being chased into an area of trees and bushes. The prosecuting counsel outlined that, quote, Mr. Quinn saw another lad who was chasing him. We say that that was the accused, but that's a matter for you to decide. Thomas Quinn was the first civilian witness to give evidence. He told the court that he passed a group of young lads as he approached the Emmett Court apartment complex in his car on the night of March 19th. Mr. Quinn described how the group had pulled their hoods up as he drove by and that as he slowed at the speed bump at the entrance to the apartment complex, he'd seen the young man who was later stabbed run past him. There was another young man not too far behind. The other members of the group slowed down and hung back from the other two. Mr. Quinn explained, quote, the lad that was stabbed ran into a dead end and the other lad caught up with him because he had nowhere to go. The witness then described seeing David Byrne trying to escape over the seven-foot wall enclosing the car park and said, quote, he was trying to make it over the wall. It all happened so quick. Mr. Quinn told the court that he initially assumed that the scuffle was, quote, a digging match because he thought he saw the assailant punching David Byrne in the back. However, as he pulled into his parking space, he heard someone screaming that Byrne had been stabbed and it was then that Quinn noticed the young man staggering towards him before he collapsed on the ground. The witness said, quote, There was blood on the side of his mouth, and I could feel his back was all wet. He was trying to struggle to get back up. I couldn't understand what he was saying. He said he held a T-shirt to David Byrne's back in an attempt to stem the bleeding as he rang an ambulance. Another resident who called the emergency services that night was Imez Kemichek. She recalled seeing three people running towards the gate after the attack as David Byrne lay bleeding on the ground. One of the men was holding a knife as he fled. She explained, quote, Two were running first, and a short distance behind there was a third man. The last man was carrying a knife. Imez described the knife as being about 30 centimetres long and said that the man was holding it to his right-hand side. All three men had their hoods up and their backs to her, and, as she watched, they jumped over a wall and disappeared out of sight. Imez then called emergency services and ran to David Byrne, who was being tended to by Thomas Quinn. Ms. Kimichek recalled noting the young man had been stabbed and that there was blood all over his face and side. He kept saying he couldn't breathe. The court also heard from Timo Latila, who was alerted to the commotion when he heard screaming outside his house. He testified, quote, I went to the window and saw three hooded guys running away towards the gates. They were running in a line. The last one had something in his hand. Mr. Latila described the object as 25 centimetres long and, quote, knife-like. 
He ran downstairs and out the door of his home to see David Byrne lying on the ground. Again, the witness told the court, the young man kept saying, I cannot breathe. He remembered noticing blood on a wall and a hat on the ground, and he pointed these out to Gardee before returning to his house. Sonia Byrne gave evidence of what she witnessed on the night that David Byrne was stabbed. She was the resident who had identified Marcus Kerwin in the identity parade at Kevin Street Garda Station after his second arrest. She told the court that on the night of the killing, she looked out her window to see a man chasing David Byrne into the complex. Sonia recalled that the hood of the assailant's jumper had fallen down momentarily, allowing her to get a glimpse of his face. Sonia recounted being brought to Kevin Street Garda Station by officers at a later date, where she was presented with a lineup of young men and asked if she recognised the person who had chased David Byrne on the night he died. Sonia had picked out number 16 from the line, and this was Marcus Kerwin. Paramedic Thomas Williams told the jury that he had treated David Byrne in the aftermath of the attack. He recounted arriving at him at court to find the young man lying on the ground in the car park. Mr. Williams said he checked for vital signs and found that David was breathing and had a pulse. However, his breathing stopped around 20 or 30 seconds later, and the paramedic said that he started CPR, continuing as they loaded David into the ambulance and transported him to St. James's Hospital. Unfortunately, it was of no use, and he later died from his injuries. With the first week of the trial drawing to a close, Garda Kieran Byrne of Kevin Street Garda Station took the jury through the first half of the CCTV footage compiled by officers, depicting the pursuit of David into the apartment complex. As the ambush at the Bosco played out before the court, some of David Byrne's loved ones became upset and left the courtroom. As the jury watched the chase continue up over the Lewis footbridge, more of David's family members became emotional, weeping as the horrifying pursuit went on. The footage then switched to the Emmett Court cameras, showing David Byrne as he ran into the complex with his assailant a few metres behind him. Both men disappeared off camera as a third and fourth man entered the frame, and 26 seconds later, the assailant came back into view. The footage was then slowed down and zoomed in for the jury, showing the assailant as he turned his head and looked behind him, revealing the side profile of his face. The three men were then seen leaving the complex, and David Byrne staggered back into shot before collapsing. Following the weekend break, the trial resumed with the remainder of the CCTV footage played for the jury, showing the three men leaving the area. The video captured at the takeaway in Drimna was also played, with particular attention paid to the clip of the assailant leaving the premises and removing his grey hoodie before going back inside, wearing his green and white rugby shirt. The identical shirt that Marcus Kerwin was wearing when arrested was produced in court for the jury to examine. Garda Pat Culhane gave evidence of how he identified the man in the grey hoodie as Marcus Kerwin. Garda Culhane told the jury that Sundrive Road was his first posting and that he was assigned beat duty, which he performed on a pedal bike or in the squad car. He said that through his routine patrolling of Drimna, he had gotten to know the people in the area, including Marcus Kerwin. Garda Culhane recalled going to the incident room at Kilmainham Garda Station, where he watched the footage a number of times. He said that he had made his identification on careful analysis after multiple viewings. 
However, under Cross from Kerwin's defence barrister, it was established that a number of other Gardaí from the Sundrive Road station failed to identify the assailant as Marcus Kerwin, despite the fact that the officers worked the same duties and beats as Garda Culhane. This, the defence claimed, was evidence that it was Garda Culhane who was the outlier, as it was him alone that had made the identification. Detective Garda Brendan Supple gave evidence of the messages found on David Byrne's phone. He detailed his experience in mobile telephone analysis before describing to the jury how he examined the phone using XRY software. The messages extracted from the phone were read to the court, detailing the conversation David Byrne had had with the person who he assumed to be Sinead, using the phone number ending in 1132. Then, Kerwin's defence counsel challenged Detective Supple's expertise, asking if he knew how the software operated, to which Supple replied that he did not. The detective said, quote, I have no knowledge of the ins and outs of the software itself. Kerwin's defence also brought up discrepancies between what emerged on the XRY analysis and what emerged when the phone was examined manually by Detective Garda Orla O'Brien, but no explanation could be given in court for these differences. Probation officer Orla Kelly testified that a number of weeks before the stabbing, she met with Marcus Kerwin. She asked him for his main contact number and confirmed to the jury that the number he gave was the same number that was in contact with David Byrne on the night that he died. Closing statements were heard on January 31st, 2013. Dennis Von Buckley told the court that Marcus Kerwin had, quote, lured his victim into a fatal ambush by pretending to be a girl. The state's case relied heavily on the eyewitness statements and, in particular, the identification of Marcus Kerwin as the youth in the grey hoodie by both Sonia Byrne and Garda Pat Culhane. The case was strengthened by the mobile phone evidence and the testimony from Kerwin's probation officer that he was using the number, ending in 1132, as his main contact number in the weeks leading up to David's killing. However, Marcus Kerwin's defence team contended that there was no scientific link between the crime and their client. The CCTV footage showed a chase, but there was no assault caught on camera. The youth in the grey hoodie was identified as Kerwin, but nobody had witnessed this youth stabbing David Byrne, and in fact the only person who had seen the attack described it as looking like a fistfight. Kerwin's barrister asserted that there was a lack of evidence against his client, and asked the jury to find him not guilty. The jury began their deliberations the next day, and after four hours behind closed doors, they returned with a unanimous verdict, finding Marcus Kerwin guilty of the murder of David Byrne. There were audible gasps from Kerwin's family members as Mr Justice Garrett Sheehan handed down the mandatory life term to the man who was now 19 years old. It was decided that Kerwin would serve his time in the adult prison service, and he showed no emotion as he was led away to begin his sentence. Outside the court, David's family expressed their relief that justice had been done. David Sr. said, quote, We've been waiting for this day for a very long time. David's aunt, Angela Byrne, spoke emotionally, describing her nephew as a gentle giant. She added, quote, He cared for his mam, who had cancer. He was just a lovely boy. After the court proceedings concluded, it emerged that four men were reported to Gardee for witness intimidation at the beginning of the trial. 
As a result, they had been taken to a separate courtroom before Mr. Justice Paul Carney, who held them in contempt of court overnight. The men were also excluded from the remainder of Marcus Kerwin's trial. A week after Kerwin's sentencing, David Byrne's family filed back into court to deliver their impact statements before Mr. Justice Garrett Sheehan. David Sr. described how he initially thought Gardy were joking when they turned up on his doorstep to tell him that his son was dead. He described David as a popular and hard-working young man who loved sports, music and animals. He continued, quote, David had been trying to mend his life and he had been torn between right and wrong, but he stayed on the good side and he was not involved in drugs. On the same day, Judge Paul Carney announced that no further proceedings would be taken against the four men who were accused of witness intimidation, saying that excluding the men from the trial achieved the objective of allowing the case to come to a lawful end. However, in the aftermath of the guilty verdict, witness Sonia Burns spoke out saying that she was being targeted in a campaign of ongoing intimidation for the testimony she gave during the trial. The mother of five reported that she had to move out of her home after being subjected to threats from supporters of Marcus Kerwin. Sonia also had excrement thrown at her, and she said that she was so terrified of retribution, she started wearing a hijab to conceal her identity. She told the press, quote, David suffered a terrible death, and I just feared so much for his family. I've had to leave my home and change my name because the guardie were concerned about my safety. But Sonia said that despite the fear she now lived in, she didn't regret testifying against Marcus Kerwin. She explained, quote, I like to think someone would do the same for me if it happened to one of my loved ones. In 2015, Marcus Kerwin lodged an appeal against his conviction on three separate grounds. The first was a technicality involving the warrant issued for his second arrest. The law stated that because Kerwin had been detained on a previous occasion, a subsequent arrest could only be made if an officer of the rank of superintendent or higher came into further information about him. The defence asserted that this meant an arrest could only be made by Detective Superintendent Gabriel O'Gara, who made the application for the arrest warrant. However, the arrest itself was made by Detective Sergeant McNulty, who was endorsed to execute the warrant by Superintendent O'Gara. Kerwin's appeal barrister, Dominic McGinn, argued that this rendered the arrest unlawful, and because of this, the subsequent identity parade was also unlawful, and therefore Sonia Byrne's identification of Kerwin should not have been admitted into evidence. The second issue of contention was the CCTV footage and the testimony given about it. Firstly, Dominic McGinn said that an inherent prejudice against his client was created in court when Garda Pat Culhane said that he recognised Marcus Kerwin. This would inevitably have caused the jurors to conclude that Kerwin was known to Gardee, resulting in bias. Along with this, the barrister claims that when Garda Culhane made the identification at Kilmainham Garda Station, correct procedure was not followed. This was because a written record of how the officer made the identification was not made at the time. Mr. McGinn also questioned the fact that there was also no record made of the number of other guardie who viewed the footage and failed to identify the youth in the grey hoodie. For these reasons, he claimed that the process was fundamentally unfair. Finally, Kerwin's legal team questioned the admissibility of the XRY phone analysis. The defence claimed that the efforts to link Marcus Kerwin to the phone number ending in 1132 were inadequate because there was a culture among Kerwin and his friends to swap SIM cards with each other. The link between Kerwin and the number was solidified only by the testimony of the probation officer 
and Mr. McGinn asserted that this was insufficient. The functioning of the XRY software was also called into question because during the trial, Garda Brendan Supple admitted that he didn't know how the software operated. The appeal was ultimately rejected by the three-judge panel. In his ruling, Mr. Justice Birmingham said that Kerwin's arrest was executed by Detective Sergeant McNulty on a statutory basis, and that there wasn't a deliberate violation of Kerwin's constitutional rights. The judge also ruled that the identification of Kerwin on CCTV was a correct procedure, even if a written record wasn't made at the time. As to the issue of the mobile phone technology, Justice Birmingham said that there was no need to call a software engineer to detail how the software operated. With regard to the defence's claims that the efforts to link Kerwin to the phone were inadequate, the judge concluded that the fact of contact between David Byrne's phone and the phone ending in 1132 formed part of the circumstantial evidence jigsaw. Accordingly, he said the court was satisfied that the trial judge did not err in allowing the results of the XRY analysis to be presented to the jury. Following the failed appeal, Sonia Byrne gave an interview to Stephen Breen in the Irish Sun, claiming that she was still suffering ongoing threats and intimidation from supporters of Kerwin. Ms. Byrne said that despite the passing of time and the failed appeal, she continued to live in fear and had to move a number of times as she was under threat of being burned out of her home. She said she was terrified to even leave her house in case they were waiting for her and often felt like a prisoner herself because of living with these sorts of fears. Ms. Byrne went on to praise the guardie from Kilmena Garda Station who helped her through her ordeal, saying that they had been fantastic and had provided incredible support over the two years before. But despite this support, Sonia reiterated that the stress of being constantly under menace was wearing on her. She told the press, quote, I won't be here at Christmas and I will leave Ireland because it's just too dangerous. I'm even afraid of ordering takeaway because I don't know who could be calling to the door. Despite a file being sent to the DPP, none of the other youths involved in the ambush and chase of David Byrne were ever charged in relation to his death. As of 2023, Marcus Kerwin is serving out his sentence in Mountjoy Prison. He still maintains his innocence and thus has never given a reason for murdering David Byrne. Over the years, Kerwin was moved to Mountjoy's Low Security Progression Unit, which typically houses inmates who have served long sentences and are enrolled in educational courses. However, in August 2023, he was moved back to the main prison after he was found to be in possession of a mobile phone. It was the third time he was caught with a phone during his time in prison. Writing for the Irish Sun, Stephen Breen reported that prison bosses also suspected that Kerwin had been using drugs. A source quoted in the article said, He was caught red-handed with the phone and he's also been using illegal substances. There is a concern he could be disruptive to other inmates in the progression unit. David Sr. has said that he feels sorry for Kerwin, but that he could never forgive him explaining, quote, he was in the wrong situation and the wrong time in his life, but I can never forgive him. In honour of David's life and the contribution he made to the community, a huge mural of his smiling face was painted across the wall in the John Bosco Youth Club, along with the caption, Gone but not forgotten, smiling in the sky. David Sr. visits the memorial occasionally and says he is heartened that his son was commemorated with such strong affection by so many people. He said he was proud of what David was doing to help people with disabilities and misses him terribly. Despite taking solace in the goodwill for his son and the community, David Sr. is heartbroken that he will never see David again. 
and that he will never get to enjoy the experience of being a grandparent. David Sr. admitted, quote, There's a massive void in my life that will never be filled. He was my only child. All I have are my memories and his grave. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Patrons get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, nifty merch, and of course my unending thanks and undying love. A special thanks this week goes out to Owen Casey, Kathy Watson, Naomi O'Keefe, Roisin Gilly, KK, Molly, Brian Mitchell, Mockingbird Nation, Jess, and Ashling Naughton. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn Song The Dance Begins by Kevin McLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin McLeod. Apologies for any sound issues you might have heard this month. We've moved, but I don't yet have my recording space set up, so I'm back to pillows and a kitchen table. Hopefully it's not too bad. Hang in there for next month. Everything should be back to normal. This episode was researched and written by the amazing Aileen Spearin. Additional writing and production was by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.